Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. When you love meat, you find a way to take it with you everywhere you go, especially when it comes to getting outdoors. That's why Smithfield has so many high-quality, delicious meats that are perfect for any outdoor adventure. Whether the park you're headed to is a national park or just the one down the street, like Smithfield marinated roasted garlic and cracked black pepper fresh pork tenderloin, expertly seasoned for on-the-go flavor, or prime fresh smoked ham that'll have you building on-the-go sandwiches packed with flavor. Smithfield Extra Meaty Back Ribs bring hand-selected perfection to the backyard, and Smithfield Anytime Favorites will help you take the ham you savor to the places you love. From diced ham that'll turn any picnic into an outdoor feast, to hickory smoked boneless ham steaks that are the perfect cap to any hike. The great outdoors just got greater with Smithfield. For the love of meat. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Nomad Strength Show. We have a super fun episode today. I was really excited to be able to talk to Derek Woodski. Uh, Derek is a, I mean, just a gangster of performance mind when it comes to training and programming and coaching. He was a high-level uh, thrower in uh in college and after in in the you know the late 90s early 2000s did a lot of competitive things um brilliant coaching mind he's been all over the world working with people on a performance output level and uh, i heard him speak last year at summer strong talking all about supplementation was really the first time i'd heard him speak in public uh that I, that I've was able to go to, and so that was an awesome talk. He was at Winter Strong, uh, doing some outdoor performance type stuff. We were throwing rocks, throwing spears. He was talking about output and uh, you know mechanics as it relates to that kind of stuff using natural implements. That was a killer part of the weekend, and uh, I have been wanting to talk to him, you know, really ever since Summer Strong. But it just ended up working out that we connected at Winter Strong and had some good talks, and uh, we were able to sit down and and have a really cool conversation diving into performance and it went a couple of different ways that were really fun there's so many things i we could have talked for several more hours and this the, the hour that we were together just kind of flew by uh, but we we got into some really cool areas as it relates to athletes at a youth or college level kind of in that weird like transition growth phase of bodies and minds and stuff and uh, what we're seeing in performance as it relates to training and recovery we did a ton of talk about recovery and the things that he's seeing and that they're using with athletes uh at the you know the collegiate and the olympic level that he's seeing and then uh you know we got into a deep dive on programming and talking about you know recovery and a programming cycle and how that you know the different ins and outs and the minutiae of how you manage recovery for uh how the athletes are responding and really getting you know it's a, it's really a coaching type conversation at its core because 
yes, there's the nuts and bolts, but you got to understand the coaching aspect of it and the art where uh, you got to know your athletes. And he gives some really great practical advice on ways to adjust uh, templates, training templates for athletes, depending on what part of the season they're in. I mean, if you're a coach and you work with athletes, you're going to just nerd out on this episode. It was a ton of fun, and I don't get many nerd out programming episodes in, so this one was a blast. And I know you guys are going to enjoy it because he really does uh, have a lot of knowledge and tell some great stories also. So make sure you go follow him on uh, Instagram is where he's most active, Derek Woodski. And uh, before we dive into the episode, uh, if you guys have not joined the new Telegram channel, Nomad Nation, go do that. I'm basically going to turn this thing into the new Facebook group. Uh, we're doing lots of new things in there. I streamed a solo cast last week in this episode. It, from the last week's episode, I streamed it live in the Telegram channel. You can see the video of that. Uh, we're going to be doing all kinds of stuff like that in Telegram. It's going to be a blast. So that's kind of going to be the next level if you want to have some deeper conversations about some training, some health, some life, uh, anything that we're talking about in the nomad strength world, uh, it's going to be over in that Telegram channel. I will put the link in the show notes for that you can go ahead and join and do that and it's going to be a good time so i hope to see you guys in there and without further ado this is my conversation with Derek woodski okay we are recording for the one and a half time i guess we'll say uh <laughs> we tried this once and had to bail from some spotty internet connection but we're now we're here doing it again uh Derek woodski thanks for making the time again to come on I appreciate it. The second time's a charm, right? Yeah, we'll have it all dialed in this time. It's all good. <laughs> um, one of the things that, and we did talk about this a little bit, um, but I just thought it was really funny. It was an observation that I made when we were at Winterstrong. You know, that can be uh, a really cool event to dive really deep on some stuff with a handful of people. You know, that's kind of like the whole, you know, deep water is one of the the phrases that we that we like to use for that and uh i just thought it was really great you know there's all these conversations happening um talking about training and performance and outdoors and that kind of stuff and i imagine like you know the performance side of it you're in a lot of those conversations but that evening you and i were just sitting watching the watching paul play guitar like we were just rapping about montana and laughing at the overheard in bozeman instagram page and it was just it was nice to have the like that's you know i, I consider montana my second home so you know i always love getting to rap with people that are about it there because you're up in uh kalispell area correct i am yeah so right in kalispell proper yeah. uh what a lot of people that used to live here would think of as North Kalispell, but no, it no sure. longer is. You know, it's uh, it's before Home Depot and after, <laughs> right? <laughs> you right. know, the, the pizza place on Second and Ninety Three. You know. Yep, exactly. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's so funny. There's such a a distinct like conversation that you have with someone when you're when you're like, oh, you're from Montana. Or like, oh, you're from Idaho. Like, oh, okay, I can I can talk to you a certain way. Now, and it's funny how that happens. Just like psychologically, when yeah. you find somebody like that, that you know, you know, only this person's going to understand this thing in the way that I talk. It is. It, it's kind of unique being here, <clears throat> and, you know. And I I went to college years ago in northern Idaho in the late '90s. It was obviously even different back then than yeah. it is now because so many people have bought second and third homes in this area with the idea of trying to. I don't know, maybe go somewhere really beautiful. Sure, we could say that. But I think some of it is people are trying to buy space. Yeah. Um, and so, 
even though there's a lot of people that have moved here recently, and I say recent, probably last three years, the start of the pandemic, maybe yeah. even the year before, you know, basically whenever Yellowstone came out on television, right? So, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, yes. so when you see these people, um, it's weird. We were, my fiance and I were having this conversation yesterday, driving back from Big Mountain is right now on the highways, you see two things. You see Subarus and you see pickup trucks, right? <laughs> right. And that's it. There's, yes. like, there's very little yes. in between, right? Um, and I said to her yesterday, I go, you know, it's funny. This is the only place I've ever lived in the U.S. where I got stuck behind a Prius yesterday with a vote for Trump sticker. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's, awesome. such a, it's such an interesting place where, awesome. you know, when I lived out in California, you, you got what you got. Oh, and, yeah. And even though we were in the Sierra Nevadas, it was, there was a lot, you know, up there, there's a lot of secret conservatives, as they say. And they're secret, honestly, because (laughs) the amount of crap that they catch, if they talk about anything but the company line, it's brutal, right? So it's the one nice thing about being back here in Montana. It's, um, you know, no one really kind of locks you in. Like, if you want to have a conversation about whatever, no yeah. one's really going to say much about it. Sure. You just may not have it twice with certain people, <laughs> right? Because right? they'll be like, nah, we're good. I've, right. I've heard that line, <laughs> right. right? So, like, but they have a good day. But they won't judge you. <laughs> yeah. Have exactly. a good day. But they're not going to judge you on the front side. They'll be like, hmm, they'll just give you the nod, right? Like, right. Uh, <laughs> you know, I started going to college this semester. So, I, you know, six months of school, I'm just about finished. And, it was funny because like the second night of night class, our professor was like, so I'm going to be the only conservative voice at the college this semester. Like, he was very, you know, Make the declaration very, at the beginning. Yeah, very matter of fact. <laughs> That's awesome. What is the uh, school wise? What are you doing? Where, are you, where, where are you going right now? So I went back to school for a semester at Flathead Community. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. So. You know, it's funny, like, as much education as I've gotten over the years to go back to to a night class community uh, in my 40s has been kind of interesting. It's not a, your typical, like, uh, uh, non-traditional student. We're all non-traditional students, most right. of us in there, because it's for the sheriff's department. So sure. everybody's older, yeah. everybody's done something else or is involved in something else, and and it's funny because, you know, I remember going to University of Wyoming for sports back in the late 90s, you know, like a non-traditional, like they really stuck out, you know, yeah, like oh, for sure. And we made fun of them at the time because you're 19 or 20 and, you you, you know, you think you've, <laughs> well, you just, like, who's the old guy? 20. It's pretty obvious. Yeah, who's the old guy? <laughs> yeah, old guy, old girl in the class because they were always more prepared, always better dressed, (laughs) (laughs) always took notes, way better students, asked better (laughs) questions, right? Asked questions, you know, full stop. You know, so it's funny because I've been back to school twice, um, once in my 30s and then for this semester. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's funny because when I came through high school, I wasn't a particularly good high school student. I just wanted to play sports and mess around outside. Same with college, to be honest. Like when I went to university, yeah, I got good enough grades to stay eligible. And, you know, the year I got injured, my grades went up, you know, which typically happens. Um, but I got healthy again and then went back down, you know, mm-hmm. so whatever. Um, but it's interesting 
because having gone back to school twice, one time for much more advanced education, you know, a lot of deep uh, anatomy, physiology back then, biology, and that was in my 30s. It was interesting how much better I was at being a student Mm. when I was older. And you could say it's maturity, but I would have to argue it's a little bit of like literal, literally biological development. Sure. Like, yeah, school was easier in my 30s than it was in my 20s. And it was way easier than when I was a teenager. Now, I don't know, you know, I had some reading disabilities and stuff coming through elementary school and some speech impediment stuff. So I don't know if that's connected, but I, I will make this argument, you know, forever because I, you know, not just because I had a, a year by force, but I'm not so sure kids should come straight out of high school and rush mm. right into college. Um, I think there's like some brain development stuff that can happen uh, later. I don't, I don't think we're I don't think we're firing on all cylinders yeah. at 19. Like, I, I just, that. I don't think we are, you know? I did. Uh, I, I know I wasn't. It is, and I was the same way, you know? the And I think maybe part of it for me, too, I mean, from an actual biological perspective, that makes a ton of sense. For me, anecdotally, it was total interest level based. Right, you yeah. know, also, it was like in high school, I didn't really care about any of the stuff that we were learning about because it was trying to just shove everything down our throat, you know? And yeah, then it everything. wasn't even until later into college where you kind of like hone in on something that you like. And you're like, right. I actually don't mind reading this book. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. just telling me to read 40 pages like in class one night about some random book that I had to pay 200 bucks for. I'm just like, I why? I don't, mm. you know what I mean? But the yeah. the, bio- the biological components actually something I hadn't thought of. That's And that makes it a ton of sense too just from a growth perspective well we've gotten to the point now where we're starting to understand the detriments of lack of sleep in adolescent yeah. development so we you know they're starting to realize that now that this idea that a you know 14 15 16 year old male can require up to 11 hours of sleep to fully develop mm. and what do we not get at that age sleep yeah. and it, it's gotten significantly worse uh you know, with the advent of technology, right? Because now you can be laying in bed, you know, as adults, we do it. So, you know, a 15 year old kid trying to solve the world is definitely doing it. Um, You know, they're on their phone, they're on their uh, game consoles, whatever it is, but it's just driving that stimulation of the brain. They don't sleep. And so we're seeing these delayed development effects, even physically in athletes. Like now that's two sides of the coin though, right? Because on one side, we're seeing definite delay in like cognition, definite delay in uh, maturity in some athletes. But then we're also getting these extreme outliers on the other side sure. now, which we never like. We always had freaks, right? The old right. farm strong, you know, right. kid from Saskatchewan just or North mutant, Dakota, mutant kids, just mutant, are, yeah. right? You know that you know were raised on unpasteurized whole milk and you know <laughs> right. beef brains, right? Like yeah, they're right. just like they're not like anyone else, right? right? Now we've always had those, but now it seems like because of technology. I think it's not that we have more of them, perhaps, mm. but the ones that were not discovered or had no way of mm. kind of getting worked into the system are getting pulled in. Um, you know, like I take myself as an athlete, you know, growing up where I did in that logging town, uh, if I had have had the internet as a teenager, 
I would have been a completely different athlete coming out of high school sure. because I had no coaching, right? So I had no coaching, no guidance. We didn't have really any organized sport in our school. Um, it was very, uh, it was yeah. not good, right? It was just a small school in the middle of nowhere. Um, you know, so I look at a situation like that and it, it would have been a game changer. Like I, I was so naturally keen to self-discovery anyway. Right. So everything I did was through bodybuilding magazines that I got yeah. from the Seven Eleven. That's yep. how I learned how to lift weights. Yep. Um, same. You know, so if I could have had that same access to hammer throw, water ski, snow ski, whatever I was doing at that time, it, it may have changed the direction I went in sport for sure. Like, but it would have been completely different game. Like if we had had CrossFit in the 1990s, right. as much as I've never been to a CrossFit class right but if i had been like sitting there and been like hey that gym down the street these guys you know because it's still the same towns i grew up in they haven't changed much totally but now they got crossfit gyms they got all this stuff and the coaches are pretty good yeah right so they learned it somewhere and that's just the expansion of information so now all of a sudden i'm 15 years old and you know and say uh i think a gillespie who was a girl that was married to a buddy of mine up in Canada. She was a phenomenal CrossFit coach, right? And CrossFit competitor, you know, 10 years ago now. Sure. But if Heather had been based in Nowheresville, BC, when I was there, right. uh, she would have taught me at 15 how to Olympic lift properly. Totally changes the game. It really right? does. And, and I think that's kind of what's happening. Well, yeah. to a big degree. Yeah. The, and and it just being, and, and even now still, I wonder too, just in like the super rural areas, you know, if that still would be a factor for a lot of those, those kids in that stage as well. Cause I think too, like, yeah. you know, uh, when I was in, when I was in high school in like early two thousands, right. The CrossFit had like, was just at its like taken off point, you know, like Oh six ish, like right around there. And, uh, all of, I, I have, my uncle was a, a football coach up here in the treasure Valley, like Boise area. And they had yep. started working in some CrossFit style workouts with like their football guys. They weren't like going to boxes or anything like that, but they're like, Hey, this right. is like kind of a new thing. Let's try this. And I'm and yeah. like, you just even hearing that, I'm just like thinking there wasn't any experimentation with any of that. Like in my school, small town, farming town, it was like our, our, Body D teacher was what we called Body D by development. Yeah. It was uh, like he was a Gold's Gym, like he was an old man, but he was strong and he was ripped. And he was just like, I, I just teach you how I lift weights. And that was basically 100%. It. And yep. so there wasn't a lot of here. There's like the, a performance aspect to any of it. Or here's what somebody else is doing over here. Let's try this. Like at the local level, that really didn't even exist, even when I was going through, you know. No, and and I think that's not so uncommon. Like when I think of so when I got to North Idaho College in in the fall of uh oh, 96, man, that's going back. That's mm-hmm. a frightening thought. <laughs> so I got there in the, the fall of 96. Um the only variation of an Olympic movement I'd ever done. I'd seen them on like, you know, like simulcasts from the Olympics were like, "Wow, sure. that's crazy, you know." But it was irrelevant to us, really. You know, I right. trained at this small gym in Golden, and uh, it doesn't exist anymore. I'm thankful it existed when I was there. You know, our mentor, I had one mentor-esque, uh, mentor-esque type of guy, but, you know, 
not really. Mm. You know, so a guy named Mange, and basically he, he didn't teach us anything. We just went to the gym and watched him. Because he right. was so much stronger than everybody right. else, right? And and nice dude, right? So Manj would be like, "You got to bench more. You got to blah 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 more, right?" And mm-hmm. and it's funny because I didn't have any concept of what was good or what was bad. Remember me and a buddy of mine, Dave Gwinden, who was, uh, you know, wanted to be a bodybuilder at the time. And I always kind of wanted to be an athlete, but I had no guidance, so I did bodybuilding too. You know, bodybuilding esque type of training yeah and i remember at like 17 16 doing like 405 for stiff leg deadlifts for 10 right like just did it right yeah and (laughs) not realizing that i was going to be completely wrecked for the like i think it was weeks now that i think back (laughs) on it like i know for sure for a week I was unable to walk right, like yeah. just wrecked, right? You know, I probably tore my hamstrings, you know, damaged <laughs> the origins, like did all that stuff. But I was so young, it healed faster than I realized. Yep, so I was right. like, oh, I'm just really sore from that training. Are you though? Right? You probably <laughs> tore your hamstring. <laughs> yeah, pulled it off the bone. It's just going to heal fast because you, you got good genetics and you drink unpasteurized milk. So, uh, <laughs> so what ends up happening is, you know, we had no no guidance through that period. So when I got to North Idaho and we had a a physical education teacher there from actually Boise originally. So Corbett, who was like, I think back then might've been like a level one, level two US weightlifting coach, um, worked at the high school um, and we used their weight room in the evenings for our college training. Mm. So Corbett just wrote our programs, right? And that first year that was instrumental and so people were always like well how did you make that jump that freshman year like how did you go from never having done cleans or your version of one in high school which was 200 pounds power clean get it up anyhow um from doing that to like a 300 pound at the end of the my freshman year to a 340 or sorry 365 split clean at my sophomore year, you know, so people were like, well, how did you make that jump so fast? And well, the answer is, is because I'd never done it before. Right. Right. Exactly. So there had never poured anything into that, into that system. And, and I, I clearly had this ability to be strong, but it was, it was like a shotgun, right? Like yeah. there was so much splatter to how I was training coming out of high school and so much, uh, disassociated, uh, information, even like in terms of program design that who knew, like there was no way to predict, you know, some kids doing four or five stiff leg deadlifts at 180 pounds and has no idea what he's like, (laughs) doesn't even know why he's doing it. Exactly. You know, but if he was at freaking gold's gym, uh, downtown Kalispell yesterday doing it, someone would have put it on the gram and been like, who's this kid? Exactly. Right. No and it's like, well, don't worry, won't see him for three weeks anyway. Yeah. He'll be able to walk. <laughs> exactly. So, do you think that uh, that time period, like when you're experiencing that that freshman year of college, is that kind of when you really dug into training as training. like a thing? Yeah. Is that kind of when that began to happen for you? It was because I had good mentors and I had an amazing coach. So when I got to North Idaho College, I was really green. My even my track and field technique was was suspect. Right, like. Yeah. You know, I came in as a freshman throwing the hammer like, oh, I don't know. I, I I don't think I'd thrown 160 feet. I'd have to look, but I think it was less than that. Um, okay. 
I think if I remember the story I used to tell, I think I lied and said that I'd thrown 165. But the actual, if you went and looked at like a 16-pound hammer mark, I don't think it was much more than 140s, 150s. Okay. Um, so when I got in, uh, Bud Rasmussen was there. And Bud, who went on to be the 08 Olympic coach for the throwing program for the U.S., was starting his career. He was a teacher at Coeur d'Alene High, mm-hmm. just like Corbett, right? Mm-hmm. So they were buddies, and that worked out great. So so Bud Rasmussen, and now Bud and a guy named Bart Templeman in Idaho, they founded the Ironwood Throws Camp, right? And it's a huge camp up in Coeur d'Alene. Now it's actually, I think they're holding it in Post Falls area, but yeah. it's massive. Like, they've produced so many Olympic athletes, I can't even... Basically, every U.S. Olympian now, other than maybe Kovacs, but I'm uh, I'm yeah. not even sure about that. They've gone through that system. Yep. You know, uh, Valerie, the 70-meter discus thrower, I think she threw her first 70-meter throw at their facility a couple oh, years wow. ago. Yeah. So they've been doing this for a long time. Since the, you know, God, it must be 30 years plus now. Mac Wilkins, all the big names. So yep. that was their side gig, right, was this throws camp. And I had no clue of really any of this. So when I got there and Bud becomes my full-time coach, you know, I basically fell face first into the best junior college program in the nation. And to this day, the best junior college throws program that has ever existed. Mm. Unfortunately, like a lot of colleges, they got rid of the track program, right? Because they had to balance it out some way, you know? Um, you know, we all the shit that's going on now with college sports, you know, our big concern back then was, you know, they would ditch the track program so that they could balance out men and women's scholarships. That's right. as controversial as right. it got back then, right? Yeah. Um, and now, uh, whatever, right? I can't right. even wrap my head around the fact that I could come out of retirement tomorrow and... Uh, well, yeah, come out of retirement tomorrow and chase the world record in the women's sport and do it on some social platform, yep, right? Exactly. Completely unacceptable to me. So, exactly. Um, but with that being said, when I fell into that program, we were on a massive uptrend and they produced and produced and produced after that. And it allowed a lot of us that were undeveloped small town farm kids to get this high end coaching that then allowed us to kind of get that real opportunity at the NCAAs. So then the scholarships start coming in. You know, Bud was highly respected. The program was producing. So a lot of these blue chip colleges and blue chip coaches, they could just come in and pluck a partially developed kid, right? And and that's what they wanted because they knew coming out of JUCO now, I'd gone from throwing 150s to to 200, right? So now I'm a 200-foot hammer thrower after my second year. That's automatic conference points at the time and if they're a good hammer coach they're going to get me to ncaa's or beyond right. and so now i'm going to score my first year for them they don't have to do much yeah right now juco system has always been like the magic feeder right it's it's still a good feeder system for sport it really is and that kind of actually made me think too in reference to your point about waiting a little bit after high school right before you get in i mean like Obviously, in a JUCO, you still have to be in school. But, I mean, like, that's kind of a similar thing happening there. Like, there's still a couple of years of development, both mentally and physically, that you've got to go through. And then now 
say you're 20, 21 when you're starting right. and now it's like, okay, now I'm in a good place to actually go and attack this instead of, you know, you're not, I wouldn't consider it wasting the first year or two, but no. for some guys you're cutting, a, you're, you're losing a lot of time because you're still in that early development stage of a lot of stuff physically. Cause I mean, I remember, uh, you know, I went to Carroll college in Helena mm-hmm. and, uh, my first year, my freshman year was the first year they brought back the track program. I was, uh, it was like the first time since like the late seventies that they had a track program. And I was actually like the first person to ever sign to be on it. But I also was playing ball, uh, there as well. And I remember like going into that first camp right the couple weeks right before my freshman year. And like you go in, you're like, Oh, there's like men that I'm playing with now, you know, like it's a totally different thing. Cause you, especially coming out of high school er, in college, everybody was like, everybody's the, the big fish. You know, like that's always everybody always is when they when they get to college. And then, like, I just remember thinking, like, walking around, like, there's a dude, like, he's married, like, this guy's got a wife. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what is like, happening? <laughs> like, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> like, it's so much different. It's yeah. funny that you describe it that way <laughs> because that's exactly it. You're like beards and wedding rings, and you're yeah. like, what? <laughs> like, I don't even know how to balance a checkbook and these guys got like responsibility yeah like it's crazy and, and when someone has that level of responsibility they're just gonna hit you harder oh like yeah. they're just they just it's a whole <laughs> yeah. different mindset right everything matters yeah. to them and no, nothing's gonna be soft or like half-assed and and we used to see that in the JUCOs because we competed against Rick's college right and Rick's yeah. was a feeder system for BYU Yep, <laughs> and so I got to see it on Bulls. So you know, at JUCOs, it was Ricks, and that was our big rival because they were the hard- hardest to beat. Yeah, and then after Ricks, I was at Wyoming, so I saw the same athletes if they were good enough at BYU. You know, right. and a little bit of Utah State. You know, but yeah. And that's when I think back on it, and I and I describe it. I, you know, I use like the LDS or the Mormon Church as a good example of this because a lot of these guys are all two years plus two years older, older exactly when they come into the system. And yep. and anybody that's had to compete, especially against a freshman from BYU or a freshman from Ricks, and you're like, he's balding. The dude is losing his hair, right? Like he's just there's something that happens from that eighteen to oh, twenty one so range where they a lot of people become men. Like yes. they really become men. And yep. you're like, Oh, that guy's just bigger and stronger than I could be right now. Like yep. I I'm not there. I need time to catch up with that guy. So if you're beating him, you know you're gonna be fine down the road, but at the same time you're like, Ugh. like we knew when it came conference time. It was between us and Ricks, yep. right? Because they were all bigger and stronger than everybody else. And some of the guys at Ricks were like 24 years old. Yeah, it's crazy. You know? 24-year-old freshmen. And then they're just chasing the, the <laughs> clock to get through NCAAs after that. They're just exactly. like, okay, I got to get done. I got to get through because I my clock's going to run out before I run out of eligibility. You know? Exactly. I remember uh, <laughs> he's the same age. Actually, he might be one year. He's one year older than me. Uh, and we didn't compete against each other because he was a classification above me. But Taysom Hill played mm-hmm. in uh, like the state championship game when I was a junior, right before we played in the state championship game in football. So I like w- like we were right there with him. But then he goes on his mission for two years, comes back yep. and plays at BYU and or BYU or Utah State, one of those two. 
But anyways, he's like, uh, and then he played three years there or something like that. So like he's a, and he's like 26 or something like that. But like <laughs> yeah. by the time he's graduating yes. college and then like he, he goes in the NFL and he's like doing all right for the Saints. And everybody's like, man, he's like pretty young. I'm like, dude, he's like 32. <laughs> like he's only been in the league like four <laughs> years though. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. That's exactly it. People forget about all that. And it's, and, and I'll tell you what, I don't care what anyone says. I had buddies that were. Uh, came back from their missions to North Idaho, which was yep. common too, right? So, yep. you know, and I remember having those conversations. I, and even to this day, my buddy that I went to school with, it throws me off when I talk to him because I'm just like, oh, yeah, that's right. You're almost 50, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> like we graduated yes. at the same time, yes, but exactly. you're way older than me, right? <laughs> yeah. And I had that thought all the way through college. And it was funny. Like I meet his younger brother. Like his younger brother comes back from a mission, and I'm like, yeah. "Oh, you're you're going to be a freshman." I'm like, "Oh no, you're two years older than me, right?" Like it, it <laughs> exactly. was it it never caught up. Sense. Nah, it's like weird math from the jump. And so it's kind of funny. Like when I when I think back to when I competed against those guys and competed against even in that system. And then it gets so convoluted, right? Because mm-hmm. there was some superstars come out of uh, uh, Salt Lake that were went away and did their missions and then everyone always makes this comment don't worry they're they're, don't worry they're not going to train when they're gone for two years and when they get back they'll be in terrible shape right and it's like you know the first time you hear that you're like oh yeah that makes sense right you believe it but after your first year competing against these guys against these guys you're like oh oh no that's not how it works at all Mm -mm. like they're young ish when they get back, right? So they're 19, 20. You can make up a year in about three months. Oh, it takes no time. It age. takes zero time. Yeah. I've watched guys come back off a mission from like Paraguay, right? Mm-hmm. Take a bunch of antibiotics because they had a virus in their stomach and go from like 165 to 230 by the end of outdoor track and field season. Yeah, it's wild. And you're just like, yep. And if and if they're like uh, the two brothers from from Utah that were Olympians in the discus, they went away and did uh, their missions. Both of them, uh, the Arrhenius brothers, when they got back, they were still gigantic. Like those two guys didn't stop working out. Yeah, right. They're not yeah, over there just like, like relaxing. You know <laughs> exactly. They're riding bikes and lifting weights. That's right. all they're doing. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> That's it. It's you know? it's. Uh, from a like performance standpoint, it, it's just making me think it's it's very interesting because we were talking about like this this time period where you know you can really kind of get away with a lot, right? And uh, just because of that age that you are, like you're you right. know, sixteen to twenty one, like you can put on muscle like nobody's business, and and it kind of doesn't matter what you do outside of the gym. No. But I remember like. And you're talking about sleep and how, like, that's one of these things that we're seeing a lot now. I mean, I can tell you, my, my first two years of college, like, I was going to bed at 3 a.m. and waking right. up at 7 to go do breakfast checks for football. And then I was lifting at 7.30. And, like, I would just go through my day. I was running on, like, four hours of sleep a night. And that was just, like, what we did. And I was fine. Yeah. But then. Yeah, because you're young, right? Exactly. And it didn't matter. And so you think, like, I'm, I'm wondering before when we're talking about introducing like all these different training things that nobody had access to and you know like we're talking about crossfit stuff and like it seems kind of now the recovery part of it is a lot more of what we're needing to focus on 
with that age group for that reason. Like, I mean, sure, yeah. you you might be able to get away with it, but like, if you're really trying to be good and and optimize, like this has to be a much bigger part of what you're doing. One hundred percent. Like, I mean. Let's be honest. If you want to beat the Chinese, you can't be living in a lifestyle that doesn't have some level of disciplined regiment to it. Yes. Um, you know, especially at the Olympic level, those guys got it locked in. Now, you know, like you don't even have to have political conversations about anything. You want to talk human performance. You look at who your competition is. You look at what they're doing, regardless of the infrastructure or belief systems that are behind it mm-hmm. and be like, oh, well, they're winning and they do this. Right. And so when you start to look at those fundamentals, you start to realize they're cultivating an environment that is very broad in the spectrum of what they're doing training-wise, but very narrow in the result. Mm. And so that broad spectrum incorporates a lot of things from restoration, soft tissue, nutrition protocols, sleep protocols. Um, and even if you leave the tinfoil hat off and you leave the like exogenous uh human performance aids out of it right sure. the things that we can't really prove until after the fact like right. you know with icarus and like when the russian program after the fact they're like oh man those guys are loaded right yeah. but you don't know any of that going in so you can only look as i always say you can only control the controllables so you have to see okay So take away exogenous whatever, which all that's going to do is allow them to shorten the training window, meaning an athlete that needed six years worth of repetitions, they can do the volume to get it done in three or four, right? That's that's really all it does. It's it's, it's, uh, exogenous performance additives, regardless of what they are, all they are is a upregulator of restoration. Right. At the end of the day, that's it. So yep. in, in theory, for those listening, it's this simple. It allows you to train twice a day and say instead of once a day and still achieve the same level of restoration between sessions. That's it. Yes. Right. It's upregulating the metabolic function so you recover faster. So when you look at that fact and understand that you don't take a shot of something and it makes your muscle bigger, right? right? You actually take the shot of something that allows you to train twice as much, which makes the muscle bigger, right? right? That's the whole philosophy on it. They're actually, doing ex- they're actually doing extra work. They're actually doing point. extra, right? Yes. Yeah, so we used to say if you had four years to train an athlete and they were clones of one another, the one that will be more successful if all variables are the same is the one that can train more in that four years. Yep. That, that's it, right? So when you take that information, and it's a weird way to pull information from, like people don't think to look at drug-using athletes as the way to figure out a non-drug-using athlete's success. Mm. But you should, right? Because mm-hmm. what you have to do is you have to look, okay, what is a drug-using athlete able to do differently than we are? And then you're like, well, for the vast majority, there'll be a little bit of a central nervous system improvement like certain drugs will make someone more neurologically efficient. That's true, but it's such a small percentage. What it is more so is the increased, you know, androgen environment or anabolic environment allows them to recover, train, and grow faster for longer periods of time with less detriment to their overall biological system. Mm. And so you're like, okay, if that's the situation, how do I replicate those 
aspects that they're benefiting from without the exogenous. Well, it ends up becoming a massive focus on rest recovery and restoration between between training because those are the controllables, right? Control the controllables. So what happens is if I know I have this athlete that's going to train or I want them to train X number of days in seven days, everything that you do from that point has to be driven towards recovery restoration between the training exposures everything right so like training can actually become quite simple in application and the restoration recovery becomes extremely complex if you're trying to shorten those windows to offset competing against people that may be massively uh, exogenously stimulated by something right right and so I always tell people success, growth, and change biologically with athletes happens at the rate of restoration, right? So if your restoration rate and recovery rate between exposures is really poor or suboptimal, it's going to delay how performance ready you are before you need to stimulate and and expose again. And that exposure may be something as interesting as like the sport of of hammer, which I did, or... uh, you know, a velocitized sport, like say a, a wide out running back, you know, defensive mm-hmm. players. It's like, you don't just have to be ready to work out, like to lift some weights. That's one aspect of it. But the problem is, is we need repetitions at a certain level of neurological efficiency to get better, yeah. right? So we need to have quality reps above a certain threshold that our system recognizes, repeats, and that repeated quality is what wins an event. Now, if you're not recovered enough to be able to run in excess of 75% of your best uh, tempo speed as a sprinter, you're not going to get faster and you're not going to get better, right? And so what ends up happening is it's the same equation that occurs as someone in the gym that's just doing a bunch of garbage repetitions, doing like super light bicep curls that aren't doing anything. It's the same thing. Running slow to run fast doesn't work. Right. And so Charlie Francis talked about that a lot in his era of you can't train until you're ready to train optimally. Right. Right. You can't do the sport until you can do the sport at the level which is going to be successful. So if you can jam that window between and shorten that window between high level optimal performances, you will get more in a four year period. Let's call it that or more in a season. And when that occurs, in theory, you will have a better chance at winning. You know, you could call it the law of 10,000, right? So if you know that your exposure to 10,000 is going to be what makes you an Olympian and you can get to 10,000 in two years instead of four, that means you get to 20,000 in four. And now all of a sudden you might be a gold medalist, right? So you can take a lot of what has occurred in the past from the high performance world the drugs the blah blah blahs and you just extrapolate away and it's like can you replicate it no i don't care what anyone says you can't replicate it you can't replicate putting high octane gas into a motor if you've only ever understood 85 percent right like it's different um is there dangers that come with it yeah of course and not to mention you're gonna possibly never get to play sport again because you test it hot but you can definitely take a natural athlete through good restoration methods and dramatically improve the odds. And we're seeing that. We're seeing clean athletes do stuff now that I believe are clean. Um, I, you know, I can't say they're 100% clean until, you right. know, 
Well, they just have to keep testing clean, yeah. right? And when they retire and they're still clean, I'll be like, yeah, he's still clean. Yep. If they test positive, there's it's retrospect at that point. Everyone right. becomes an armchair quarterback. But we are seeing athletes now do things, what I to believe is non-assisted, that was unimaginable even 10 years ago. 20 years ago, we would have thought it was impossible. Right. We didn't think... We did not think that you could throw the seven or 70 feet in the shot put clean 20 years ago. We just yeah. didn't believe it because no one was doing it, you know. Right. And, and now the world record was broken by a drug-free athlete. Right. And that's an interesting point of it, too, because I think if you look at it even away from the competitive athlete on a performance standpoint, just the regular person training, like their initial maybe inclination to it is going to be, well, I just have to train more then like because if we're talking about if I'm trying to hit this, you know, if I'm trying to get to a certain point in my in my maybe it's CrossFit competition at a local level, whatever it is, you know, like they're thinking I got to just train more because that's what, you know, we've got to hit that volume without thinking like, well, what if it's just garbage sessions that you're putting yourself through and it's not it's maybe not even not helping you. Maybe it's actually bringing you back a couple of steps at that point, too, for sure. And so the recovery point of it is is super interesting to to think like at the highest level too like that almost becomes the priority, and like you said the the sessions and the training themselves can be like it's basic because we we know exactly what to do in here and this is all like it's almost just math, like in the gym yeah. you know like you, you have a very specific thing you need to do but there's all kinds of other stuff that have a lot of other factors the second you step away from the gym that like you've got to actually be pretty good about controlling for it to make yeah. a big difference because obviously like you give someone an hour in the gym and then you're like, okay, well now I need you to be on your game for 23 more hours until you're here tomorrow. Like that right. becomes way more difficult for people. And, and even at the highest level, you know, like you, you, you can't just like keep someone in your hip pocket all the time, like no. slapping away things out of your hand or like making sure you're going to bed at exactly this time and getting this kind of sleep. But yeah. it's a huge process now on the recovery side. And then like you look at all of the, technology for recovery now that you see with all the different you know whoops and aura rings and like you know chili pads on the mattress and like all of these things that are designed for this it's like that's becoming a much you know huge market a huge market and and even like as we're realizing like you said it arguably more important part of performance yeah so it's like there's a reason for it it's not just like shilling stuff out like you you know and the technology piece is interesting too because i have a I'm trying to think of who was telling the story. I think it might have been, I heard it on another podcast. It was Kelly. Kelly Starrett was telling the story, uh, and he was working with, um, I think she was a, a cyclist, and she was pretty young, and she was, like, just kicking everybody's trash all the time, but she was wearing, like, a, you know, or a ring or a whoop or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, she woke up one day, and the, and the thing told her, you know, you're only at 58% recovered today. Like, let's modify your training. And she came in. She's like, no, I feel great. Like, this, I, I feel fantastic. Like, I can train hard today. That's what I'm going to do. And so I think there's this weird, like, yeah. we need to have this disassociative nature with this technology because, like, it can help as diagnostic, but it's not like knowing really what's going on. Like, it can fool you a lot. So, I mean, it's an yeah, interesting especially... like, back and forth with it. So, you know, you think the aura ring's been out for a couple of years, but mankind has believed in oracles for a millennia, right? right? And so what ends up happening a little bit is we're replacing one, and not that 
the ring is this, but athletes love to replace their superstitions with superstitions, right? Yes. So, and it has to do with our ability to self-soothe in times of high stress. That's what superstition typically is. It's self-soothing actions to ensure consistent repetition right baseball pitcher that jumps over the line as he runs out to the mound lucky rabbit's foot right right? um you know people were carrying dead body parts of animals in their pocket until the 90s right (laughs) (laughs) when you think about this you know we we've forgotten about the rabbit's foot but it's just like are you just gonna hang that witchcraft off your ass today like what are you doing over there (laughs) right it's like ah but this witchcraft keeps me safe and lucky but It's the same stuff, right? So we all have those things that we do. Um, And it's the nature of of our our biology, the stuff that we probably can't even really quantify in a lab anymore in terms of our psychology. But whoop bands, rings, etc., they can be feedback to see i've always looked at that stuff like even using my garmin watch or whatever for my mm-hmm. training to get some metrics i always look at it as a way to give me feedback to where i'm at yes. to, it, sometimes it'll confirm but the one thing i learned a long time ago that especially with the neurological system readiness can be often the exact opposite of how you basically do like a self-assessment feel and yeah. so we used to see a lot with uh olympic lifting powerlifting stuff right you'd see the guy yawning coming through the door and then just pr out right crush it, yep. and crush it and there's something about that like suppressed cns and so it shows up as suppressed parasympathetically with all these monitors so you got low heart rate um, possibly low heart rate, blood pressure could be off. There could be a bunch of things like this, not necessarily like a, a tachycardia where someone needs to recover because they're they're too amped up when they should be sleeping. But you get these super suppressed uh, biologics that come out of it, and then they start to warm up, and they're just on their game. Yeah, and you're like, what you're probably seeing, and where I think some of this technology misses it is they miss the actual undulation of a supercompensation at the bottom of the peak, right? So where the athlete, for whatever reason, falls into an extremely parasympathetic rested state, um, they seem lethargic and tired. Yeah. And they're just like, coach, I'm out of it. I just, something's not right. And uh, when, when I used to see that consistently in training, that's an issue. But when you see it once in a while and you have been monitoring their periodization, what you can do is step back and be like, and it, it should be this way for all coaches. Coaches that don't coach this way, they just haven't got enough experience, period. You take that athlete and you're like, we're going to do our dynamic warm-up, which should be the same every day. The dynamic warm-up never needs to change. All these coaches that are constantly changing their dynamic warm-ups like it's a periodized thing, like, no. It, you should be, like, mindless. Yeah. Like, when my athletes were warming up, they were going through patterns, and they do the sequence. They do it during training. They do it during meets. It never changes. And the reason is, is you want that neurological system to have some sort of consistent primer or trigger that they get used to and it gets easy and it gets mindless because right. you want an empty space for the nervous system to come on. Mm. doesn't mean it's easy, but it's just empty, right? right? So the warm-up should never change. Like people, it's a warm-up. It, it should be as 
patterns should be so complex that they don't become patterns, right? right. So you're like, ah, a guy hurt his left hip because his warm-up's the same every day. No, that, that shouldn't be like that. Right. But with that being said, a good coach will take that lethargic athlete, and when they're starting to go through that 15, 20-minute complete activation, they're either going to either fall off which means they need recovery and rest because their nervous system crashed beyond the state of, of where it was at, or they're going to come flying out of that state of lethargy. But then you have to be careful because a lot of coaches will chase a PR coming out of that uh, supercompensation or that parasympathetic yeah. dip, and then they'll smash them out. The next yeah. day they'll be done, yeah. right? So what you do is you let them come out and keep them governed on the program. Don't let them take that extra rep, extra set. If you're doing a velocitized sport, you monitor how much they're actually doing. You measure. You don't let them go beyond. And so what ends up happening is a workout that was in the book already for a specific requirement just becomes an easy day. Right. They're like, ah, oh, smash my weights today, coach. 85% was a joke. And you're like... Yes, because you're probably neurologically wanting to do 105 today. So with that being said, that's a super consistent way of doing it. Now, if they come out of that general warm-up and and you just see them go, then you have to Charlie Francis those athletes and you can't let them go after it until they're recovered. Now, with that being said, if it's the off-season, sometimes you just have to pour dirt on a dead body, right? Like. Exactly. <laughs> You're gonna bury him to bury him, right? Yeah. So. Yep. And it's and one of the things uh, since I started, well, I guess it's been seven or eight years now since I really started getting into a lot of the different breath mechanics and right. and nervous system manipulation using breath protocols and and things of that nature. It's one of those things where I've always thought it was interesting that people always think like, if I'm not ready today, like for whatever reason, you're coming out of that warm up and you're just torched and like, and, and it very well could be like, you need more rest, right? Yeah. You just need some extra rest or whatever. But sometimes like maybe they need like a little kick in the pants. That's yeah. not something that you need to wait an entire day. Like the day's not shot. No. Like you can, you know, take five minutes and go through kind of like a ramp up breath protocol just to wake yourself up a little bit more yeah. and still get quality at least out of this. Even if it's not, you know, that high 90 plus percent, like you can still manipulate your nervous system enough to make it worth it in in a few minutes. It's not like, oh, I, I show up at 8 a.m. My training's I'm, I'm not feeling great. Let, guess I can't do anything today. You know, it, it's like there's still maybe that level where you can get enough done where it's still beneficial for you at that point. And, and a couple of things like breath work or, yep. you know, I've even seen and messed with like doing some uh, like cold exposure stuff prior to just to like see what happens. Yep. And like that stuff is, you know, I've, I've seen that a handful of times. I mean, depends on the situation, obviously, but stuff like that exists too. So, I mean, if from an experimentation point, like, it might work, you know, so why not try some of it every once in a while? Well, and that's it. Like we've known for 30, 40 years that if you have a way to measure grip, right? And it can be as yes. simple as a one, two, a half, captain's a crush type of deal. You measure your athlete's grip after their dynamic warm up, And if it's gone down, they're done. They're done. Yep. We know that neurologically it is that simple. And people don't want to believe it. And it's like, listen, if you got a an athlete that can do a close crush of a number two and that's their level, right? And they come in and they're like, clink, right? They're ready. They're going to train yep. fine that day. If they're telling you they're tired, something was going on that they're not telling you, 
right? Because their nervous system, I'm good. I'm tired in my head because I was fighting with my girlfriend, boyfriend. I got exams. I got whatever. I stayed up too late. I played Halo until four in the morning, right? Like, yeah, it's going to be something like that. But their nervous system doesn't lie. Now, if that athlete comes in and you know that there's someone you can depend on in terms of, of what they're up to and they're a number two crusher and they're like, and they just can't, they're not going to lift anything for you that day. Like their performance yeah. is going to suck. And and that has been used forever as a measure. Now they usually use one that tells you the actual pounds so you can get a real specific reading. It doesn't yeah, matter. You get real granular with it. Yeah, right. And you, and you can do yeah. that and that's fine. But another way that people often overlook, and Poliquin used to talk about this all the time when I worked for him, and he produced a lot of Olympic athletes that won medals. And, and it, you know, we'd see it with people that were under the weather. Um, but what we'd always talk about is the first variable you always cut in programming is volume on the micro level, right? Mm-hmm. So not total volume of the program. But if you come in on a Monday and your athlete is in a rough way, you just cut volume. So what does that mean? So say the athlete has a standard 27-set workout, right? Like which is kind of the sweet spot for most athletes. Take all the movements they're going to do that day. It's going to be about 26 to 30 sets, right? And that, that's going to be ideal. It's going to be about a 50-minute workout if they're pairing up certain agonist, antagonist, stuff like that. And it's not a yep. uh, end-of-season workout where you got three-minute rest, right? So right. when you look at that type of stuff, you just take that volume, and the first thing you do is you just slash it back down to about 25%. You can't do this for a long period of time, though, or the athlete will peak. They, they will. So right. that's a whole nother conversation. But for that yeah. micro-workout, you slash them down, and you keep the intensity of the movement high. Right. So it's like if they're for simplicity sake, they got 10 sets of 100 meters. That's their workout. They're going to warm up and give you three max efforts. Right. So if they needed to do 90 percent that day. Right. For 10 100s, they're going to give you 300 meters at 90 percent, you know, with the same rest, the same everything. But that's it. They're done. Right. Yeah. So you get that high level of central nervous system stimulation to the athlete. And that's it. Now, where this confuses people is people that don't play high output sport, right? So Mm. an athlete that has like a slow twitch or a weightlifting for the sake of bodybuilding or is a marathoner or whatever. Typically, what we see with those athletes is you can cut volume and you'll have similar response, right? Um, But if you have an athlete that is so blown out that they're just going to kind of crawl through that session. Those athletes tend to benefit better from like a focused restoration session where they're getting soft tissue work, breath work, cold exposure, something to help heal and get the body because they don't need the high rate of muscular contraction. They just need volume all the time. And those athletes tend to require a lot more restoration in terms of systemic restoration Whereas our high velocity athletes that are creating force very quickly, we need to heal tissue at the micro level and get connections and tissue to heal faster, right? So we can expose them again. Um, And the contractual, uh, contracting ability of that athlete stays high. But if someone's just a jogger, eh, 
as much as you know you hate to kind of cast them aside what happens with those athletes they just need simple post recovery restoration and they may, may yeah. need to drop their volume as well but the intensity is a lot lower naturally so it, it gets right. a little murky like yeah you you don't want to dismiss them because what they're doing is extremely difficult but at the same time the level of trauma to the tissue is also less per session. Sure, you know. Yeah, and the and the idea of having to be smart with how much you dialed back that volume because, like you said, it, it, you might work into essentially a taper week, yes. which is what your plan is. You know, the week of a meet or yep. whatever or or whatever it is. Like you you do that for too long, yep. like you're actually gonna repeat. You're gonna like reset you said, the now system. You've and now you got to reset everything, yeah. so it's it's this weird like balancing act. But one of it's a from the coaching perspective of that just has to be you knowing your athletes. Yes, you know, like that's the relationship part of it too. Like you understanding like something's not right, or like maybe you did do like the grip thing, and you're like something's definitely not right. right. Like we need to back this off. It's not just feed you through. Everybody's doing this thing today. It's like you got to make these adjustments, and that's like. I mean, that's the art of coaching, coaching right? And it's most, you know, true form. And, and it's not only just backing the athlete off and knowing the athlete. And I know they, I wish this was more cemented with people. It's having consistency to your program so that mm. the program itself is not the cause of the current change. Right. And, and this is where it gets tough. In the private sector, people like to be partially entertained for what they're doing yes. with you. They want to have yep. new and challenging and, and interactive things occur that make them feel like, oh, today we did this thing and I'm going to talk about it over wine and cheese with my wine and cheese friends, right? And it's like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> compared to when I coach college, which for my personality, I prefer, right? I, like for me, yeah. it's like, Listen, mother truckers, I'm writing your program <laughs> six weeks in advance and 50 days from now. That day we're doing this and it's going to be correlated to what we did today. And the reason we're yep. doing it that way is so if on day 44 something goes sideways with you, it is, it not only does it show up like a spotlight, but we can know what caused it or what we need to adjust. And, and so if I got an athlete like, Say Trevor Bassett, who just played or placed second uh, at the Worlds in the 400 meters, place got the silver medal. Um, when I helped develop his program going into the Olympics, even though the Olympics got all messed up with the extensions right. and whatever, like when we developed his program, it's like we don't want there to be any surprises. Right, like we want it to be as predictable as possible. Now, where it becomes troublesome is if an injury happens in the sport and it throws things out. But in an right. ideal world with an athlete like that, or say Kurt Roberts when we did his quadrianoral going into the Olympics a while back now, it's like you have to have an A, B, and hopefully a never C program, right? right? And so if you're really in it with an athlete and you know you got this long period of time to work with them, 
everything's based off the A program and literally a written A program. Like this is going to be our yep. periodization for the next year, ideally, right? And it'll change a little bit with sickness and in travel or they're like, hey, coach, I got this opportunity to go to uh, Cutter and compete at the Diamond League, but it's during this period of our training. And it's like, right. oh, okay, we're going to have to make an adjustment, right? Like, so that happens. That is totally fine, right? Um but then you also should have a paralleling B program. And all that paralleling B program does is it, it mimics the movements of the A program, but with the decreased volume parameter. So athlete hmm. gets sick, athlete's not recovering. You may even switch out the actual exercise selection, but the actual movement that you're trying to mimic or maintain stays the same. Right. So like an example, you got an athlete that does predominantly high Olympic poles or hip shrugs or hip hang clean for, say, their event like that's that's their go to big a movement in that B program that week that may switch out to actual a hinged kettlebell swing. Right. And yeah, volume doesn't go up. Intensity comes way down to some degree um, because you can't really mimic load the same. But the velocity of the kettlebell and the uh, eccentric and isometric of catching it really changes how it affects the body. So there's some things that happen there where you can switch that out and it deloads the athlete just enough to help them recover, but you're not taking out Mm -hmm. patterns and you're not confusing the nervous system by going from like a hip hinge to, oh, okay, this week we'll front squat. What? Right? No, you're you're going to smash it. Similar enough. Similar enough. It's not going to matter. Yep. Or hip hinge, uh, hand clean becomes vertical jumps, right? Like it, it doesn't have to be particularly complex. And then, you and then as they start to recover and you see them come up they can kind of go right back into that a program again and they'll be fine but if it starts to go too long where they're not recovering then there's either sickness injury lifestyle uh social consequence there's something going on that's completely disrupting their system and you may have to go down to that hopefully never see program which is recovering them and getting them sorted out so that you can build back into your stage A program. And that'll happen. I mean, injuries, I've been injured, so I've been through that. Um, Typically, though, if that lasts for too long, the hard conversation starts to happen. Like if you're having to drop to your C programming for more than a month, you're basically pushing their performance out a month, right? Right. and going back to like periodization for a peak, if you decrease volume, and what I've seen in my experience, if you decrease volume in the total program by 50% for 7 to 14 days, you've reset their ability to peak. So so the peak occurs for most athletes at a 15% reduction of volume for 7 to 14 days. Not long. Right, so you can act, and yeah, not long at all. And the longer that peak, or the quicker the peak collapses, is still based on you know original periodization methodology, narrow base, narrow peak. Right, so yeah. if you haven't had a lot of time to train that year, and you pull that volume for some reason for way too long, they're gonna their their peak falls very fast, and they and it'll take a long time to get back up to that level again. But if you have that massive base of training, the peak has a long, flat top to it, right? Which will be more like 14 days before things start to go sideways. 
Yeah. Yeah, everyone used to be like peaking in a day, and it's like, well, you got some time. (laughs) (laughs) I missed my peak. (laughs) Right. And it's just funny because it has me kind of like racking my brain going backwards thinking about how we used to do all of our, you know, because I was a a multi. Yep. And so I was doing, you know, all kinds of different events and stuff. Ten events in seven days. Oh, man. That's how you got to train, right? And and several practices a day, that kind of whole thing. But, I mean, like, the way that the sprints and stuff were structured and, how like, similar things like what you're talking about. I'm, like, going back, I'm, like, you know, that actually is a lot of similar stuff that we were doing. So, like, I feel good about it now. Yeah, yeah. Retrospectively, (laughs) you're, like, uh, we're all right. (laughs) We were all right. We were good. So, um well, man, we're up already on an hour. I could, I mean, we're, when you get down into the nerd rabbit holes of programming, dude, yeah, I could right. go all day with you. So uh, <laughs> maybe we'll have to do this again at some yeah, point. Yeah, for sure. But, um, thank you for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. And thank you for again for being able to reschedule. I had a blast talking to you. Um, it was awesome. Where is, where is um, if you've got stuff that people can go check out, or you want to throw out some links or anything like that? You know, my I, I really only use one social media platform, and that's Instagram. Um, yeah. It's just, it's that's how I am. Like, uh, yeah, you know, it's the easiest way to kind of get a message to me. Just my name at Instagram. Um, yeah. If I put out information, that's really where it's going to end up. I don't use Facebook, even though it exists, because. I don't know how to get the photos off at this point in my life. Right? <laughs> it's just right? going to be there forever. It's going to be there forever. Yeah, it's a time capsule. Um, yes. But the only reason I go on to Facebook anymore is to look at memories to make sure I didn't write something in yeah. the 1990s, <laughs> early 2000s. Delete it now. Yeah, it's like, is that cancelable? Oh, no, I'm good. I'm good. I, yeah, 2004 is not going to uh, hurt me at all. Right? So... <laughs> Or <laughs> two thousand, probably six or five or six, I think, was my first year on the on the face page. Oh, crazy! It's bizarre, right? So I'll go back, check out memories, see what I was up to eleven years ago. You know, um, that's so funny. But that's about it. Uh, Instagram's kind of the go-to. It'll kind of get you to anything that I'm doing. If there's uh, yep. another website or whatever, and I don't really promote that other stuff just because I, I'm not on top of it. But Instagram, I check yep. every day because it's the awesome. gram. So. Yeah, it is the gram. It is. Well, uh, (laughs) thank you again, man. I really appreciate your time, and uh, we'll talk soon, all right? Awesome. Appreciate it. Mm